Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Good to be here with you guys today. Be on this side, right? So I want to thank Evan for coming down and leading worship, and uh, that way I can focus on teaching this morning. So my first time teaching to you guys, so I'm super excited, and I want to thank you guys for coming out and braving that cold weather. I'm pretty sure I got passed by somebody on a sleigh this morning coming to church. That's a first, right? Uh, But you guys came out, you're here, and uh, like I said, you're braving that cold weather. I thought earlier this week, I kept getting these notices on my phone that said it was going to snow, and I get really excited about that. And so I'm going, come on, come on. And it would say it's going to start soon, and it never did. So I thought I was going to get cheated out of the snow, but we certainly did not get cheated out of any snow, right? We've gotten a lot of snow this year. Uh, speaking of being cheated, how many of you guys have filed your taxes yet? Anybody? Yeah, good. The rest of you need to get on it, okay? You got to get on it. But interestingly enough, that's what our passage is going to be about today. So we're going to be in Mark 12. So if you'll open your Bibles to Mark 12, um, verse 13. And we're going to cover two passages here this morning. I want to read the first one to you. It's entitled, Paying Taxes to Caesar. And uh, this is what it says, Mark 12, 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to trap him uh, with his own words. And when they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and do not court anyone's favor because you show no partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But he saw through their hypocrisy and said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought one and he said to them, whose image is this and whose inscription? And they replied, Caesar's. And then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Amen. Amazing passage here this morning. So as we move closer to Resurrection Sunday, we continue to follow the ministry and the teaching of Jesus as recorded by Mark leading up to the cross. So we're looking at the last few days of Jesus' life. This is a culmination of three years of earthly ministry in Jerusalem and Galilee and Judea, and it's all coming to a head right here. So he's at the height of his popularity. Everybody knows who Jesus is at this point because he's been doing miracles and all kinds of signs and wonders in the land. And everybody's coming to see who he is, right? It was just a few days before we had the triumphal entry and uh, they're proclaiming Hosanna as he's coming into the city. So Jesus has had a number of confrontations, as you know, with the religious leaders, most, mostly the Pharisees who we hear about a lot. But we're gonna see here in this passage What's happening? There's a coordinated attack against Jesus from two of these political groups. Um, They want to find something that they can use against Jesus because he's been a big problem for these people. And now they've set it in their hearts that they want to kill him. And so they're going to try to find something to trap him so that they can find him guilty and put him to death. And what you're going to see here is they bring two arguments against Jesus. One is going to be a political argument and one's going to be a theological argument. We're going to look at both of those this morning. So Jesus is at the temple courts. Presumably we know it's a Tuesday because it was just the day before that Jesus was in the same place and he's clearing out the money changers. He's flipping over the tables, right? Just the day before. So you can imagine that's going to be very fresh in everybody's mind who's there. All the people 
that have been following Jesus and especially those religious leaders because he's coming into their house, the place that they hold authority over and he's doing that. So I kind of imagine that as he's giving these two discourses here, there's still some stuff laying around. There's still kind of a mess where he's at. I don't know. I, I kind of picture that's how it is. So uh, last week, Pastor Ben looked at the parable of the tenants, how the religious leaders rejected. Uh, the religious leaders of Israel rejected the prophets and then Jesus prophesied they were gonna reject, they were gonna kill him, right? That's just right before this passage. It's all happening at the same time. I think it's really important to know that because we cover all this stuff over weeks and months and oftentimes we forget how close everything happens together. This is all happening in the span of just a few days and it's only a few days later that Jesus is gonna go to the cross. So with that in mind, let's take a closer look at this passage here. So Mark says, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to trap him in his own words. Well, first of all, this is the ruling religious authorities. This is the Sanhedrin that has sent the Herodians and the Pharisees. They're the ones that are now coordinating this attack. Um, there's two groups that really dislike each other, actually. The Herodians are very loyal to Herod and to Rome. Um, they think that uh, they see Herod as kind of a vehicle that's going to fulfill their political ambitions. And so for their cooperation, what uh, Herod, what he gets, what they get from Herod is political power and they get prestige. They get that honor at the table. Remember, Jesus talks about that, taking the place of honor at the table. So they get all that stuff um, for their loyalty to Herod. And then you have the Pharisees and the Pharisees despise the Herodians. They don't like him at all because they're, you know, the Pharisees are the ones that keep the law to the T and uh, they don't like the Herodians because they're sellouts. They see them as sellouts. So, but also what I want you to notice here is Mark uses the word trap. It's the only time that the word's used in the New Testament. And what he wants us to know, he wants us, the reader, to understand with clarity what's going on. This word means to catch or ensnare like an animal. So he wants us to understand this is a very hostile, violent, premeditated attack against Jesus. That's what they're doing. They've been plotting to kill him. They're going to manufacture evidence of wrongdoing. And if they can question him enough, they're hoping that he's going to indict himself and they'll have him. You got to be real careful about that stuff. I feel like we live in a day and age today where it's real easy to get trapped, right? Because we've got cameras all around. Um, we're always hearing things about somebody who says something. Now they go back a long time ago, right? Long time ago, and they trap people in their words. Well, that's exactly what they're doing with Jesus because they got the whole crowd here. So they're going to catch him. Um, verse 14 says, When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and you do not court anyone's favor because you show no partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They're pandering to Jesus here. Right? They're trying to build him up, trying to get him so he's not defensive, which we know isn't going to work. They're also doing this for the sake of the crowd. Uh, have you ever had somebody that you didn't get along with, you've had a disagreement with, um, and, and it's like in front of everybody, they, they're confronting you, but they start it and they coax it with all these compliments? You ever had that happen to you? And it's like, really, I know you don't believe that about me. You're going to say that here and you're doing it just because you're trying to win all the other people over to your side and then you're going to say something about me, right? That's what they're doing to Jesus. Um, but he's not going to buy it at all. And then they ask in 14, uh, you know what? My kids are actually really good about that, by the way. 
all right? My kid, no, check this out, all right? My kids will come to me and they'll say, you know, you know, your kids do the same thing and they'll be like, dad, you're so great. You're the best dad ever. Oh, you're so awesome, dad. You're the best, whatever you do at work, you're the best at that, right? They don't even know, right, sometimes. But what do they want? They want something from me, right? Your kids do that to you? It's because they want something from you. So they layer it on real thick. So 14 says this, it is, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But he, that's Jesus, saw through their hypocrisy and he says to them, why are you testing me? He does something incredible and he asked them to bring the denarius and so they bring it and he says, whose image, whose image is on this? And whose inscription? They reply, Caesar's. Um, first of all, notice Jesus makes them provide the coin, right? He's asking them to provide the coin, which illustrates something that they have one of these coins. And we're going to talk about why that's significant in a second here. But most likely it was one of the Herodians that gave him the coin because a denarius in that time is actually quite a bit of money. It's actually quite a bit of money. So they're, those ruling authorities are the people who would have that kind of money anyways. It's also a Roman coin. And this is really important and we're going to pull up a picture here. But the denarius is a Roman coin. It's about a day's wages for a common laborer or for a Roman soldier at the time. And on the front of the coin, it would have been inscribed with the name Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. It's an Aramaic, so you can't read it. Uh, but to the law-keeping Jews, just having one of these coins in your pocket amounted to idolatry because it had an image on it. And so they saw it as a violation of the second commandment in Exodus 24 that you shall have no graven images so that's actually how they viewed having this kind of money so when we read this story we have to understand that that this is something that the people would have understood immediately what's going on here this has been going on for a long time actually the Jewish people had their own coinage that they came up with to deal with this very issue and so they would deal with each other with their own coinage and it would have uh, pictures of like wreaths or a menorah on it, but it would never have an image of somebody on it. Really important that we understand it. And actually there's an account in Acts 5.37 um, about a man named Judas. We read about looking back on this. He led a revolt about, uh, against paying taxes for this reason and the Romans put him to death and put his followers to death. So it's a pretty big deal for the people at that time. So, First thing I want you to see here is that they're going to level this or they're going to level this political dilemma against Jesus. That's the first thing. So there's the background. The religious, religious leaders see this going one of two ways in their favor. Either Jesus says that you should pay the tax, in which case he appears to stand in opposition to Jewish law and to the law of Moses, or he says you shouldn't pay the tax in which case he, opposes, uh, he, he appears to oppose Caesar. So either way, they feel like they're going to get Jesus trapped here. And also, it's Passover week, which means uh, Herod is going to be in town because Herod likes to give the appearance that he's an orth a good Orthodox Jew, even though he's not. People know that, but he likes to give that appearance. So he's going to be there uh, because he's going to be going through all the feasts and everything associated with Passover. And so is Pontius Pilate, who we, of course, know about later, right? He's there because he's a Roman governor. And when stuff tends to go down in Jerusalem, it happens at Passover. Because that's when everybody's there. 
So both of those guys are in town. The religious leaders know it. If they can get Jesus to say one of these two things and trap him, they can immediately take him to one of those two guys. Uh, So they have expediency on their side with this. So it takes the denarius supplied by the religious leaders. He asks them to identify the image on it, right? And then he tells them, give it to Caesar. It's Caesar's. And then uh, they're left with nothing to say because Jesus doesn't fall for the trap. Now this kind of may seem like a simple answer, I feel like, when you first read it. Maybe like he's trying to be indirect. uh, But Jesus knows immediately what the root of the issue is. And he gets to the root of the issue. And the root of the issue here is about image. It's about whose image is on that. It's a really important concept. So Jesus frames his answer around understanding of image. Image identifies to whom the item belongs. And so he's making this point that Caesar is the rightful authority behind the money because it's got his image on it. It's got his image. Uh, But also it's very tangible because it's something he could hold. But on the other hand, he's making a really profound statement about God's authority. I had a teacher who once said that every moral issue that we face in our culture can be viewed through the lens of image and as an attack on image or what we call the um, imago Dei, which is the image of God. And ever since creation, Satan's been trying to distort the image of God, trying to destroy it. So if you look at anything else, uh, anything that's going on in our society today, you can really see this happening. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that abortion is such a horrible horrible sin is because it's a failure to recognize that we are imprinted with the image of God from conception and you're destroying the image of God we could go through countless issues that we face um, gender issues God made them male and female in his image it's the image of God and that's the thing that Satan tries to go after to distort and he does it in one of two ways first um, either by replacing God with something made in our own image This is what we see a lot in the Old Testament. It's idol worship, right? They make the golden calf when they're waiting for Moses up on Mount Sinai. We see that a lot. I don't think we understand that as much because we go, I don't understand why they would do that. But it's the same thing. Today we do the second thing. And the second thing is this, failing to see the full extent to which we are made and reflect God's image. That's really the thing that we struggle with honoring the image of God in others, right? And so anything that you look at today, I really believe you can find that. It's a failure to recognize the full image of God. Um, Being made in the image of God also means that we're not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We don't have sovereign authority over our bodies. We don't have a valid claim to authority over our own bodies, let alone to another. This is the very antithesis of our culture's understanding and their worship of personal autonomy today. It's what our culture really worships. I get to be in control. And what God says here, what Jesus says here is, no, you don't. Because you're made in the image of God. That means you belong to him. That means he has authority. And I don't really think that we can get through to people on the other side until they have an understanding of that concept, that they're made in the image of God. Um, I really um, don't like it when people say something like akin to, we're animals. Oh, we're just animals. We're not. 
right? We may share DNA with animals and things like that. It may be similar, but we're not. We are made in the holy image of God. Nothing else in creation bears that distinction, not even the angels. That's reserved for us. So we are unique. But Jesus also makes a bold statement about human authority here because he regards the pagan state, in this case Rome, as legitimate. And he indicates that Caesar has a right to authority. And this absolutely was not what these two groups were expecting. Um, Whatever their differences were, it means that Israel and Rome both derived their legitimacy from God. Wasn't the view that the Jews held. Remember, they thought that a son of David was gonna come and he was gonna usurp the throne of Rome and take over, right? What Jesus is pointing out here is it's not gonna happen that way. It's not gonna be a violent revolution. It's not gonna be an overthrow of the government. It's gonna happen through that power, with that power in place. Um, Whatever you think about our government today, it's a little bit of a divide in our country, right? But whatever you think about it, I gotta tell you, it was nothing like the Roman government. They were the most brutal and violent and corrupt government on the face of the earth. And so Jesus says all this in light of living under that government, which is pretty incredible. And what we see is as we go forward uh, and Jesus brings this into the light of the kingdom of God that he's bringing to earth. And what we see, it becomes a basis for New Testament theology on government authority. It also becomes a cornerstone of our very own American democracy because we believe we derive our rights from God. The government derives its authority from God. That's why in our money, even though we have pictures of the president, it says, in God we trust, right? Because we know that's not the person who's divine, but it's in God that that authority comes through, which is pretty incredible. Uh, So a couple things here. First, governmental authority is under God's authority. Human government is deeply biblical. And if we look back to Genesis 1.28, God commands Adam and Eve and he says, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So there's a couple points here. First, governmental authority is part of what we call common grace. That is grace that God extends to everybody regardless of whether uh, they know Christ or not. That's grace that everybody gets. Secondly is this, government authority by nature reflects God's authority. Read about this, especially in Romans 13. It echoes this foundational biblical theology. It says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except by God's appointment and the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. So even though government is not specifically Christian, it is good. Government's a good thing, we're told, because order's certainly better than organizing society around unfettered self-interest. And it's there, um, it's there to minimize the effects of sin and wickedness in the world. Finally, it's clear, last thing here, that government, governmental authority is a temporary institution. So here's the good news. If you're not happy with the things that are in place now, um, it's not what God has planned for us. And someday, we won't have to put up with it anymore, amen? Right? We won't have to put up with these grueling election cycles. Who's excited about this election cycle? Anybody? No, we're sick and tired of it. Something wrong with you if you're excited about that. I don't know. Uh, But someday we don't have to deal with that anymore. Okay, we don't have to deal with it. Uh, Politics are really important. And I do think that we should be informed. I think it's our duty to be informed 
about these things. But we have to be really careful uh, that politics don't define us. Our identity as image bearers of the holy God and as Christ followers is what defines us, right? That's something we never lose. That continues forever. But politics won't, which is, which is good news. Um, political identity shouldn't trump identity in Christ. No pun intended right there. Um, but Jesus pushes a question back on the Pharisees and on the Herodians. He leaves them speechless with his answer because it's not what they expected. Um, because he sees through their hypocrisy. He calls out their failure to worship the true image of God. In fact, their failure to worship the exact representation of God that's standing right before their eyes. The king of kings that's standing right before them. They fail to see that. So the second thing here is a theological dilemma we're gonna look at now. This is his second little passage here, and I wanna read it. Um, now the Sadducees are gonna question Jesus. The Sadducees are another group of religious leaders. They actually hold the majority in the Sanhedrin, so they're the ruling party at the time. And uh, they have a couple things. They're, they're very aristocratic. They're the conservative wing of the religious leaders. They don't believe in a bodily resurrection. They don't believe in any resurrection. They're basically annihilationists. When you die, that's it. You just cease to exist. Because they found, they, they see a lot of inconsistencies. They don't see how it could be possible. We're gonna see that. And they also believe that the first five books, the Pentateuch or the Law of Moses, are the only books that have any authority. So they discount all the other prophetic books because of that. So verse 18 says this. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, also came to him and asked him, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, that man must marry the widow and father children for his brother. So what he's speaking about here is something called Leverite marriage. Um, or a kinsman redeemer, and it has to do with keeping the land and the inheritance in the family. Um, it's really something that was put in place to be a provision for the women and for the family as well. So there's seven brothers, and the first one married, and when he died, he had no children. And the second married her and died without any children. And likewise, the third. And none of the seven had children. And finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Man, she got around. Jesus said to them, aren't you deceived for this reason? Because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. It's a ridiculous, hypothetical situation that they came up with. Uh, not unlike many of the arguments that people raise today, right? We're really good at doing stuff like that. It's supposed to have some emotional appeal. You're supposed to feel sorry for this poor woman. Uh, they're setting up this theological dilemma because they're inferring that if the resurrection were in fact to be true and if it were to happen, all the troubles and all the things of life today would just carry right into the resurrection. That's what they're assuming. Um, and, and, and so because of that, they're inferring that it would force incest because she'd have to be married to these seven guys in heaven 
and therefore it would break the law, right? It would break the law. How could Jesus affirm this doctrine? If you think about it, we're reading John, right before Jesus raises Lazarus, what does he say? I am the resurrection and the life, right? Jesus has been raising people from the dead and these Sadducees have been questioning it. This is like their keystone doctrine. It's their big thing right here. Um, and also the Pharisees did believe in a resurrection, but I want you to understand this because they had some pretty ridiculous views. One of their views, the Pharisees of the resurrection, they believed that all the Jews were gonna be resurrected in Israel. Um, this, is a, this is a belief that many still hold today, not the second part, but that they're all gonna be raised in Israel. And so they had a problem though, because what about all the Jews that lived outside of Israel? Well, they decided that there were these underground tunnels and when people die outside of Israel, their bodies fall into these tunnels and they roll back into Israel. Okay, that's literally what they believed about this. So you can see in light of that, why people had a hard time believing in the resurrection, right? Especially the Sadducees, they're going, that's foolishness. And it is foolishness. Um, but Jesus says, and he rightly accuses them of not understanding the power of God. And I think this is really key here because it's something that we're guilty of a lot too. They don't understand the power of God. They're trying to use their human reasoning to explain how this could happen. And it's beyond human reasoning. I mean, seriously, the God who created everything out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing, probably isn't gonna be an issue for him to raise somebody up to life again, right? So Jesus uses the reference from Exodus the law of Moses to prove them wrong because remember those are the only five books that they consider to be author authoritative. And so uh, he says that as for being raised for the dead. If you're not read in the passage about the bush, God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's not the God of the dead, but of the living, right? So what he's pointing out to them because they're gonna take scripture very literal very literal, and he's using that against them and saying, hey, he can't be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob if they don't exist anymore. Really awesome what he's doing there. And then I love what he says because he, he goes, uh, you're badly mistaken, which I kind of picture, you know, oftentimes we don't understand the human side of Jesus enough, but he has been dealing with these people a long time, okay? It's been a long week for Jesus already. Long week, right? And I think he's kind of fed up with it. So it says there he's badly mistaken, but it's like, man, you guys, you're just a bunch of fools. You don't get it. You're missing everything. I'm standing right in front of you and you don't see it. And you're so caught up in your human reason and everything else, you fail to see that the king of kings is standing right in front of you and that the kingdom of God has come. And that's what Jesus is saying to them here. Um, so let's look briefly, real quick, and just see what Jesus is saying about the resurrection and marriage. There's a couple things here. First, Jesus says that they're deceived because they don't know scripture or the power of God. So again, they falsely assume that if this resurrection were to happen, that all the problems, all the things, all the institutions that ha are, are around right now are just going to carry right over into the next life. So in this case, if you're married, you're going to continue to be married in heaven. And Jesus says it's not true. They're not going to be given a marriage to heaven. We could spend a bunch of time talking about this. Uh, because I really think that people have some pretty poor views of what heaven's gonna be like. I feel like a lot of Christians have kind of one or two views 
either heaven is, um, somebody I saw once had a hat that said, heaven is a Christian's retirement. And I thought, that's really boring. Horrible, I hope it's, it's not. Heaven's supposed to be like the beginning, right? Like finally we're past all this junk. Now we can do something. So if you think you're gonna get to heaven and it's just gonna be this boring place where we're all sitting on a cloud or, or you know, we got the streets of gold, of course, and everybody probably kind of has an idea of what their mansion's gonna look like, right? But if you think that's it, man, you got a, a very dim view of heaven uh, because everything that we have on earth here, every, even the best pleasure that we have is nothing compared to what God's plan for us is for heaven. Nothing. God's got a lot of work for us to do when we get up there too, by the way, um, because we finally put sin and all that stuff behind us and really get to the work he wants us to do. Uh, and so in this case, marriage is this human institution that God sets up and it's a living parable of Christ and of his church. That's why Jesus uses that all the time and talks about the bride and the bridegroom, right? The church is the bride of Christ. It's a living parable. Okay, another living parable that we know is baptism, right? Baptism is this living parable. Jesus teaches these things. It's about resurrecting in the new life. It's about washing your sins away. So just like that, our marriage, our marriages are just a faint picture of what's going to be there. And so uh, when we experience the presence of Christ in heaven and the consummation of holy marriage in heaven as the church to Christ, it nullifies the need for marriage and for procreation. We don't need that anymore. And so you don't need to look at an imperfect picture uh, of something, a, a tiny, crummy picture of something when you have the real thing in front of you. So maybe turn to your spouse and say, you're a tiny, crummy picture of what's coming. Don't do that, that's a bad idea. But uh, my point is marriage is awesome. Marriage is great, right? Mary is one of those, marriage is a holy institution of God. But when we get to heaven, it's gonna be so much better. And our relationships are gonna be so much deeper. We can't even imagine that. But our relationships with each other are gonna be so much deeper because they won't have insecurity and all those things surrounding them. So the power of God in the resurrection means that the kingdom of God is realized in its fullest and that the laws on earth that govern our bodies, that govern our relationships, all those earthly authorities pass away because they're only temporary they're nullified in heaven by the total authority and reign of Christ. Everything will come under the lordship of Christ and he'll rule directly over us when we live in perfect relationship with him and each other. It's the kingdom of God, which is one theologian said, is the kingdom already but not yet. It's the kingdom already but not yet. It's the thing that Jesus came to inaugurate in his earthly ministry. The kingdom of God. So what he's saying here is uh, the failure of the Sadducees as well as the other religious leaders, they miss Jesus standing before them. They miss that the kingdom of God has come. They're so busy trying to figure things out in their human thinking. They challenge Jesus at every point and in just two days, just two days, guys, Jesus knows this. Two days is when Jesus is gonna go to the cross. But here's the thing. When you think about this question of resurrection, Jesus knows what's coming, doesn't he? Because he knows that even though they may win that battle and take him to the cross, what's gonna happen in three days after that, right? He's gonna make one final claim over death. He's gonna resurrect and it's gonna change everything. And what's really fascinating 
is what we see in Jewish theology, especially throughout history after this, right after this happens, the resurrection of Christ, the Sadducees cease to exist very shortly after Jesus rises from the dead. And we see in Jewish theology, all these explanations for resurrection because I think it's one of those proofs because it happened, they gotta explain it, but they still don't acknowledge it. They've gotta explain it. So I find that very telling that the Sadducees really cease to exist shortly after um, Jesus rises from the dead. So I wanna give you four practical things that you guys can take away from this. Four things. First one is this. Obey earthly authorities and pay your earthly dues. File those taxes if you haven't done it yet, right? Federal government needs your money. That Congress is hungry to spend your money, aren't they? So there's a couple reasons for this. Uh, we are to pay our taxes and get along with the government when it's not in conflict with Christ, right? Because that's how we witness to others. We live a peaceful life in front of them. When we get caught up in that stuff, it's not good for the gospel. Uh, number two, give everything else to God or give God everything else. You're made in the holy image of God. Your body doesn't belong to you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? He dwells in you. You have the image of God printed on you. You're not your own. Don't hold on to things. You've been purchased by the blood of Christ. He has redeemed you. He's your kinsman redeemer. He's redeemed you. Number three, live in reality of the kingdom of God. Don't hold on to things too dearly. Remember that all those earthly institutions, all the things that we have here on earth, marriage, uh, relationships that we have, uh, our jobs, everything else is gonna pass away, right? And it's gonna be fully replaced by the kingdom of God and the direct rule of Christ. So we don't wanna to get too attached to those things. God has the power to raise us up to new life in Christ. That's the power of God, to raise us up to new life in Christ, just as he was raised from the dead. He's preparing something for us beyond our wildest imagination, our wildest comprehension in the age to come. So live like he's coming today and love with no regard for yourself. And number four, finally, believe in the power of God. There's no person here today that is so far that he cannot bring them back from the dead. No person. And raise them up to new life in Christ. Uh, the power of God can do amazing things. Don't get caught up in your human reason. This is a big thing. As we approach Resurrection Sunday in just a few weeks, uh, people stumble over the resurrection, right? In uh, liberal theology, that's one of the first things to go because people can't get over the resurrection of Christ. And they want some kind of proof and they want some kind of evidence. And although I believe that there's a lot of good evidence, there's a lot of reason to believe that it's true. Historically, um, it's a faith statement when we say that Christ rose from the dead. It's a statement that we make in faith because we believe in the power of God, right? And one of the first proofs that we get is that our own life gets transformed when we come to Christ. That's a testimony that all of us Christians share. I hope you share it. I share it. Because I've seen Christ in my own life and I know I, I serve a living Christ, right? I hope you guys do too. I hope you see that. But don't get caught up in that, trying to give an answer and trying to, uh, people 
stumble over that, but this is a faith statement when we say that Christ rose from the dead. This is something that testifies in our own soul. Um, So I hope you guys will do that today and uh, let's believe in the power of God, live in the reality of the kingdom and uh, give everything to God because he owns it all to begin with. Let's pray this morning. Lord, you are worthy of our praise this morning. God, we give ourselves to you. You've given us so much. You've given us life. And God, you've given us hope through your son, Jesus Christ. By him rising from the dead, we are raised to new life in him. And so Lord, I pray this morning that we would live in that truth. We would live in the reality of the kingdom of God that is here with us, God. The freedom that comes with that. Help us to not be like these religious leaders, Lord. And to miss the king standing right in front of us. The king who brings life and freedom. But help us to embrace that, Lord. And to show others by living peacefully, by obeying the laws that are put here by the government, Lord, that you have given authority over us. And so pray now, God, you would go with us and just help us to live this out. We ask this in your name, amen. Hey, thank you guys. Have a great week. See you again next Sunday.